Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So today on the pod, we're going to be talking about taxes in Canada with Dr. Elspeth Heeman, who is a professor of Canadian history at McGill University, and her recent book, um, Tax Order and Good Government, A New Political History of Canada, looks at the history of state formation in Canada through the lens of tax disputes and conflicts over wealth and poverty. It won, I want to make sure that I get this right. So I wrote it down. <laughs> the Canada Prize in Humanity and Social Sciences for the Federation of the Humanities and Social Sciences, and then two prizes from the Canadian Historical so- Association, the Book Prize of the Political History Group, and the Sir John A. Macdonald Prize for Canadian History, um, or also known as the Governor General's History Award for Scholarly Research. Is that right? That is correct. Is there it's anything else you want correct. to add to your biography here? <laughs> no, that's great. All of your accolades? It was the last Johnny McDonald Prize. They uh, delisted the McDonald part uh, oh. shortly before awarding it, but that one was still uh, <laughs> McDonald. Yeah, so um, we have a podcast where we talk. It's about like the, the ritualized year and the way that we're, I am forcing taxes into it um, is because we're coming up on like tax day and it's like this major part of most people's life and uh, you know how the year sort of goes like hey it's tax time Um, but I was reading your book like you do and was just really interested in the way that because we've talked about other processes of state formation and like community building and things like that and so I thought that it would be interesting for our like it's tax season time to talk about that which is how I got the questions so the state and the social the relationship between the two is uh, okay right okay because Because it doesn't quite feel like folk you know once you have taxes (laughs) you don't quite have folk anymore there's a yeah yeah between the two yeah we, we definitely are uh defining ritual quite broadly (laughs) and traditions quite broadly but it it did seem like okay this is sort of a you know sort of a a more modern I guess marker of time in our kind of Mm -hmm. like like an annual marker of time as compared to something like you know major holidays or things like that where they're you know have that older history to them but you know wanting to talk about you know kind of modern situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay all right I'm, i've been giving a lot of thought to these questions not so much from tax point of view but because i teach a law and society course Ooh. and Ooh, i've actually you. just been reading a book called legality by Ooh. scott shapiro have you seen that you mm-hmm. might find it quite interesting because the key question mm-hmm. is you know what's the relationship between law custom and mere repetition right um mm-hmm. uh the uh, customary law, Blackstone says, well, the common law of England is customary law. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as me saying I go to the inns of court or something regularly, right? You yeah. know, when does it become law as opposed to just um, stuff that people do? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, for our question the first couple of things that I wanted to talk about just because we have a lot of uh non-historian listeners and not Canadians listening as well I think our our listening body is about for the most part there are a few people from all over the world but about 50 50 Americans and Canadians and uh as all of the Canadians who I have met since moving here know, we don't know anything about Canada. (laughs) We do so good. Um, So I wanted to just do a sort of breakdown of when we're talking about taxes, especially in this like 19th century context, what do we mean? And then sort of talk about a sort of basis of how the idea of Canadian government came to 
be a thing <laughs> responsible government outside of like britishness <laughs> uh-huh. okay um so you want me to talk about taxes in the 19th century setting i mean the, i should say i kind of approach taxes as a historian not as a tax expert okay, okay. Yeah. so yeah. economists have complicated definitions about uh, it's only a tax if it goes towards general revenues if it's specifically designated right like mm-hmm. a dog tax it's not really a dog it's not really a tax and things yeah. like that but where i was um more interested in looking at you know ordinary perceptions and rough state yeah. definitions um and really a tax is simply something that a recognized authority gets to take from people <laughs> right? <laughs> right yeah okay. uh, and in the british tradition Mm-hmm. Um, it is that the consent is obtained from the people through elections, but also through taxations. You can't take people's property without their consent. And it was that principle in the Magna Carta mm-hmm. that uh, enables the commons to become the most important part of, of uh, parliament um, because it holds the purse strings, right? So mm-hmm. the government, the king needs consent to take money um, when the people and the legislators don't approve of what he wants, they don't vote the funds. And uh, this is something, and you know, if you want me to take it to Canadian history, this is something uh, Quebecois, French Canadians figured out pretty early on. We get to say no taxes, right? They're a lower mm-hmm. house that the British government created legislatures so that there could be local taxation and local government. It couldn't mm-hmm. tax people imperially without those local legislatures. So uh, the, the legislatures in Quebec uh, pretty quickly realized we could just vote no to supply and they don't have any money and they have to give us the things we want. <laughs> Government really broke down yeah. over this. Um, and uh, it, was, it was the most legitimate form of uh, political dissent. Mm-hmm. And yet it was seen by, you know, you can imagine that the Brits running the government were like, this. what is this upstart Quebecois community <laughs> doing telling us that we are accountable to it, right? They, yeah. they wanted to be accountable to the British taxpayer, not mm-hmm. the Canadian one. Um, and that's really what the responsible government fight was about. As you brought it up, I'll, I'll just yeah. say the, the fight over responsible government was a fight over, to no small degree, the civil list. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things they were fighting about, and I don't want to go too far into tax history, you can tell the thing entirely without reference to taxes, but um, when they created the Union of the Canadas, had the rebellions, when mm-hmm. you know relations over the, the civil list and the taxes really broke down, rebellions in uh, Lower Canada, mass event, and then they 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 suspended the constitution and then they created a united province of the Canadas in 1841, right. and they wrote. Uh, what had to be spent into the bill creating it and the governor was like oh my goodness you can't do this because I've got to go to the legislature for money and they're refusing to vote it and you know how are we it's an imperial parliamentary act we can't veto it here but you you've really tied our hands so they were really intensely fighting about and um, the the famous uh, rebellion losses bill was a money bill um, it was a tax bill essentially where they it wasn't what they were going to tax but it was do the legislature legislators get to spend money reimbursing the rebels for their losses if they want to right and the british government is like this is terrible (laughs) and the governor is like i don't like this either but i'm gonna hold my nose and approve it and that's how responsible government was you know creating the canadian legislature somewhat in the image of parliament with that Mm -hmm. particular power didn't have all powers but it had the power to vote its own taxes effectively cool right that was 1849 oh, that okay. was a lot of information so i'm going to take a second <laughs> it's, I, I can add a, that was a lot of information i can add a point that um if you wanted to compare that to the united states mm-hmm. arguably canadians achieved in 1849 through negotiation what the americans rebelled to achieve Right. right. The Americans chose to rebel around taxes mm-hmm. violently. And the Canadians said, we think we can do this without violence. We think we can negotiate our way to getting American like powers here. Essential self-government people. People argue. I just read a brand new book published 2021. <laughs> Canadians Ooh. began their journey to independence or self-government in 1867. 1867 didn't really do anything much that 1849 right. hadn't already done. Um, in terms of, you know, self-government rights, that's that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, but you see, you know, just trying to, if I were to make the comparison with the United States, 
Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, I was sort of getting at with that question um, about explaining responsible government, because the U.S. has this narrative of a very clear foundation point, which isn't necessarily accurate, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an easy, like, for our, like, heritage versus history kind of context for like American heritage when you think about it it's like ah so we had the revolution and then it's like that's where we became Americans which again isn't totally accurate but for Americans trying to understand Canada it's a more complicated than being like there was a revolution and now we have our own government but all the questions the Americans face about, you know, what does it mean to have a constitution? How do we do mm -hmm. this? You know, that carries on. And it, yeah. so many intense debates, right, about exactly what that means um, is uh, is still going on in Canada, too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, sort of earlier and later that that it, it, it's remarkable how similar, you know, the yeah. conversations are. Um, and one of, the, one of the books I read this morning that, as I say, this one that talked about independence 1867, but it's a really neat book. It's by a guy called... Um, uh, Benjamin, um, oh, darn, what's his last name? Uh, Hoy, Benjamin Hoy. And it's mm -hmm. about the border. And it says, you know, more than anything else, the border kind of created, it's like a prism. Canadians and Americans are negotiating it and it refracts, you know, and splits in so many different ways. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, um, and taxes are very, very prominent in, in his story um, because there's a lot of smuggling all through this period. And uh, the limits of what a Canadian or an American government can do at the border when women are smuggling, when Indigenous people are moving back and forth across the border and selling things again, you know, tax laws, so to speak. Um, so it's really quite interesting to see at one level, the Americans and Canadians make hugely different decisions. At another level, they create, um, and this is also an argument by Bradley Miller, who's in Vancouver, they create a shared continental culture around yeah. how you administer things like taxes and the national tax association in the united states um created in the early 20th century remakes itself for a couple of years as the international tax association and it admits canadians and then they realize it's a terrible idea <laughs> <They go back>. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> which there, there's a real there are real yeah, you know american exceptionalist you. elements to this but there's also negotiation interesting negotiation that is yeah um yeah so like with the this idea of sort of government and culture like time also Sonia if you have questions and want to jump in at any point <laughs> go for it um sorry uh but the the idea of how answering these questions also creates a culture I was really interested in um as you went through the different like tax revolts in Canada, um, the idea of what this like sort of new-ish concept of the, the what, what response, who responsible government was going to be responsible to, mm -hmm. right? So like, is it the, the French Canadians in Montreal in this major, uh, massive city major import city or is it you know in um in what becomes Ontario where you have all of the like more British citizens and how is wealth going to be distributed and what what does what is the government responsible for for doing and for paying for and how how yeah, do you navigate I, I think that? I, I think I can uh, run with this a little bit. Um, that, uh, part of what we're talking about here, and what I talk about in the book, is uh, responsible government raises this question of, okay, so the the legislature is accountable to the people, but. Mm -hmm what do we mean by the people? And yeah. there's a backlash. Um, all sorts of people say, well, let's keep this public as propertied as possible. Mm -hmm. So where the Americans are tending towards a Republican democratic model of citizenship, it's a, it, remarkable the extent to which Canadian politicians are going the other way. And yeah. that's kind of a new observation, but there seemed to be a kind of account of Canadian history as, as almost gradual devolvement of agency and liberalism neatly unfolding itself, right? Liberal reforms. Mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, if you look at Can most of the period, most of the 19th century, Canada was run by conservatives almost exclusively. There's a couple of little, you know, even responsible government by 1854, the conservatives have control again. Um, so they want to make sure that the taxpaying citizen is the one in control. And um, Confederation is to no small degree a project to push back against democracy, Americanization, but also democracy, and to make sure that government is in the hands of the people who are as propertied as possible. And the Senate, they create the Senate, for example, with an astronomically high um, uh, requirement to uh, to get in. To, and Johnny McDonald says, well, we have to respect the rights of the minority and the rich are always a minority, right? So Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> oh, wow. <that's... laughs> yeah, I know. Minority rights as well. I love it. This is, but Johnny McDonald... Physically I painful. <laughs> I don't think people understand just how conservative he was. I happen to think, and my current book is on, uh, on this, is that he created a conservative playbook that uh, you know, you're, that he, where there, there's some work in the United States right now. Corey Robin has, is talking about how gonzo conservatism in the United States is trying to get back to pre 1832, right? Great Reform Bill of 1832. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think McDonald took Canada back before the Great Reform Bill. He did it carefully. He did it very delicately, and it didn't long outlast him. Um, you know, he it was a real fight to do so. So he's doing this with tax policies and with franchise policies. He's trying to keep his definition of who can vote property. He doesn't care who you are. You can vote as long as you're property for him, with one major exception, and that is um, Chinese who he thinks are unassimilable. He doesn't care if you're female. He doesn't care if you're indigenous, right? If you meet the property requirement, he wants you to vote. Um, but on the other hand, he is, I argue, determined to avoid any conversations between the state and the public around the meaning of property to tax, right? There's property law exists in a place between the state and the public. It is the thing that they're negotiating around, right? The people mm -hmm. expect the state to protect them and their property. Mm -hmm. And in response, the state takes some of that property, right? And that's direct taxation. And mm -hmm. um, MacDonald, who effectively writes the British North America Act that gives us Canadian Confederation, he's not the only one, he's one of many, but I, I think he's one of the key people that channels the conversation in a certain few directions. And he gives he made he learns from the american mistake the american mistake was to restrict the federal government's power to tax okay mm -hmm. the american constitution was effectively dictated in that respect by the south with a concern for protecting their slaves this is the work of robin einhorn um makes that point she's one of many but i think her work it just stands out and uh and so they wanted a government that had not the power to tax away property to the point of destruction. So they restricted direct tax powers to local governments. The federal state could only tax indirectly. That means it could tax goods in circulation, but not goods belonging to somebody. It couldn't match the owner and the, you know, um, and you would have, say, an import tax. You could have, you could tax alcohol, right? Or you could mm -hmm. tax imports. Um, um, and uh, McDonald follows the American model of focusing his funding for the state almost entirely, pretty much entirely, on uh, indirect taxes. But he also keeps the power of direct taxation. He doesn't want his government to be poor, but he also doesn't want to have conversations about how much do I get of your property. And he says very explicitly, um, you know, the liberals want to send people around to take your money. And the kind of direct taxes they're talking about and this is very right at the end of his life, right in the 1890s, um, his last campaign, 1891. The kind of taxes they're talking about, they don't care how rich or poor you are. They're just going to march onto your property and take your stuff. Right? Um, and, uh, you know, who in their right mind wouldn't prefer to be taxed on your choice of things you buy? If you want to buy expensive stuff, you're going to pay more. If you want to, if you don't want to pay taxes, just buy cheap stuff or buy local or something like that. Right. And it sounds mm -hmm. very democratic. 
democratic. But the truth is that the Canadian tariff is essentially dictated by the economic interests being represented. Um, you know, the sugar guy is saying what he wants on sugar. The, the iron guy is saying what he wants on iron, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's extremely lucrative. And the poor pay more taxes than the rich because a larger, it costs them more to buy sugar, right? There's, uh, right. won't go into marginal taxation, all that sort of thing. But, you know, <laughs> if a poor person spends 10% of their budget on food and a rich person spends 5%, then that poor person is paying higher taxes effectively. But you have to understand. So so yeah. there was a powerful movement for graduated income tax mm-hmm. and direct taxation. And McDonald is pushing hard against that. He doesn't want a state that can tabulate people's wealth. And so progressive reformers in Canada, um, some of them argue we want uh, a progressive income tax that can tabulate people's wealth and tax the rich harder than the poor, okay, mm-hmm. which is what McDonald doesn't want to do. And it has to be said, McDonald's account of the Canadian state as taxing the poor is accurate with regards to the tariff, but it's also accurate with regards to direct taxation. And I have a couple of examples of that, of the way uh, the BC state is taxing the poorest of the poor and the way the Montreal city government is taxing the poorest of the poor. Um, Because in many respects, it's easier to tax the poor than the rich because the rich throw up too many legal barriers and political friction and make it difficult. So um, there's a lot of money to be made in taxing the poor, um, which is, uh, I think, not been sufficiently addressed. Um, So I I could go on further about this, but just to say, right, there's a progressive income tax movement that says, let's tax the rich more than the poor. Um, And in the 19th century, that was seen as, quote, uh, class taxation. William Gladstone, for example, says this is completely mm-hmm. unconscionable. Nobody could ever do that. We need equality in our taxes. And the rise of marginalism, economic marginalism, new theories of, from economics make it much more rational. They can, they can work out formulas that make it seem fair. And there are economists doing that work. And so Britain and France, the United States introduce graduated income tax in the early, you know, sort of early turn of the 20th century, but Canada is still really, really behind in that respect. And then there was a second radical tax movement. And, you know, there was other debates about taxes, death taxes, for example, which I don't really go into, um, but a second radical tax movement saying uh, we should tax capital, not just income, but capital. And they're talking right. about land taxes in particular, for example. Right. Yeah, because that was um another thing I was sort of going to ask a question about when we're talking about property in this period I think the the ideas around wealth are also changing because of industrialization and so like I'm I'm sort of curious about this with regards specifically I think to the way that it's talked about in English Canada versus French Canada at the time because of the seigneurial system and like industrialization within Montreal and the like changing population, how like the movement toward a, you know, like wage society changes the conversation around like who has money and how to tax it. Does that make sense? Am I making any yeah. sense? I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a great book on industrialization in Montreal. I don't know if you've read it by uh, Robert Sweeney. Um, and uh, he argues Montreal was the first industrial city outside of England, uh, in the British Empire, mm-hmm. outside of England itself, mm-hmm. the UK. Uh, I don't think you can say more than Scotland or something, Glasgow. But, um, and so... I'm sure it's behind me in JP stacks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... Um, He's, uh, the suggestion here is that, um, and I kind of, you know, that everybody keeps saying these Quebecois who don't want to, these French Canadians who don't want to pay their taxes, they're so backwards, oh my goodness, right? And this is the argument from the University of Toronto uh, History Department, par excellence, this is Donald Creighton. Um, he makes that kind of the law of uh, the way you write about Canadian history. And I kind of flip that. And the argument mm-hmm. is that on the one hand, they're politically modern. Um, because they do see that this is the way to have a legitimate tax bite. But secondly, as the first industrial nation, you get the kind of extremes of rich and poor um, in Montreal, recognizably as such. And because of the ethnic 
intentions, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of organize, they identify as rich and poor. They, they mm-hmm. see themselves. And, and Sweeney is excellent. His more recent work completely did disbunk debugs, disbands any theory that there's a real ethnic polarization around rich and poor. There's an awful lot of wealthy French Canadian bourgeois, okay? And Mm -hmm. a lot of very, very poor, say, Irish workers, canal workers, etc. But nonetheless, there's the intersection you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, overlappings and uh, uh, Venn diagrams, but uh, mm-hmm. the intersection of ethnicity and wealth and poverty means that there's more self-conscious, uh, you know, a, a sense that this is a class confrontation. So I argue that um, that modern tax debates really come out of Montreal, right? And that was mm-hmm. meant to take on Toronto and <laughs> flip their narrative. And it was a lot of fun making that case. I thought I'd get pushed back. I haven't heard that. Um, and uh, so it's... Um, you know, the, the, the kinds of fights that they're having, what they notice um, is exactly as I've just said, that they're taxing the poor more than the rich. And, and I argue that, you know, the big question for the serious, the people who, you know, look at this thing carefully, and I, clo- I zero in on uh, Jules Helbrunner, who's a labor activist, writer, columnist, mm-hmm. um, and it's very clear to him exactly what's going on in a city like Montreal. They are, you can you can track it house by house and show that they're taxing the poor more than the rich. You yeah, can show yeah. that where the where the owner is Anglo, say, they don't, they even even if they raise his tenants taxes, they don't tax him, right? And it's yeah. blatantly, blatantly, you know, uh, hostile to the poor and especially the French poor, industrial poor. Um, and he produced, the thing about taxes is you've got numbers. This is yeah. not just English literature. English literature is <laughs> yeah. great, but you can produce the numbers. And even the Montreal Herald is saying, yeah, that, that's kind of persuasive, right? You know, this is <laughs> yeah. a manifestly predatory municipal government that is taking money from the poor and actually transferring it to general funds and funding rich wealthy Westmount, right? The poorest districts mm-hmm. in Montreal are funding the richer districts. And yeah. people like Hellbrunner figure this out and they realize that the question that we need to ask, and, you know, I'm trying to say, I think we still need to ask this, yeah. um, is, you know, the reform to be done is not, the question is not, you know, how do we use the state to redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor, but how do we use the state to stop redistributing wealth right. upwards, right? It's yeah, upward yeah. And that's what McDonald knows. It's precisely for that reason that McDonald is doing everything he can to avoid kind of fiscal science, right? You know, you can't figure out who's paying what and where. It's impossible to know in Johnny McDonald's Canada. It's not the issues all bureaucracy. Um, Patrice Dutille's got a great book on just what a canny bureaucrat, you know, how good he was at managing bureaucracies. Um, but he does not want to know uh, the fiscal you know, transfers. He knows he's overseeing fiscal transfers from the poor to the rich. um, And uh, he doesn't want to be caught with that sort of thing. So Montreal, I I make Montreal the pivot, the, you know, and I I really, you you know, as you say, you're interested in the voice of the public. And I I really try to, uh, to bring forward poor people in Montreal who know it's unfair, who know that whatever the calculation is, you can't get the poorest of the poor to pay more. You might as much, we we couldn't pay our water tax. My son died. I can't do anything. You might as well take our life away as to cut off our water. And yet they are cutting off the water for the poorest of the poor. Um, And uh, there's something so fundamentally, obviously not modern, not fair, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that uh, the voice, I really believe it's the voices of the poor pointing this out that transform um, Canada, discourses in Canada. And here I would point to, there's been so much wonderful work. There's a great book on uh, Insurgent Empire. Have you you read that by, uh, um, I think it's Gopal, um, Primavada Gopal. And uh, she says, reverse tutelage. It's the Mm -hmm. imperial subjects, the colonized subjects in the empire that teach the British how to genuinely be fair, you know, how to have good and fair government. And I think that's true of Canada as well. People like McDonald are going to be as conservative as possible at all times. And it's the poor 
collectively organizing and saying, you know, the kinds of arguments you use just don't work. You think your state is equal and fair, but it's not. You can't say these things that you're saying. They're simply untrue. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Definitely still a conversation that yeah. needs to continue to be had. Um, the Joe yeah. the Plumber debate. You know about the Joe the Plumber debate? Did you find yeah. it? it? Might be before your time. <laughs> no, I this remember. Was, uh, I don't know what year it was. Maybe two thousand four or something like that. It was in in the middle of a presidential election, and um, somebody says, "Oh, you know these new taxes that." Uh, I, I think it would have been John Kerry. I can't remember. Once <laughs> um, uh, was it Kerry or Gore? It was one of the Bush elections. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So he <laughs> says, "I'm just a plumber." right? I'm just yeah. a plumber. And these new taxes of yours are going to wipe me out, right? And they kick in at something like $200,000 a year. Um, yep. And uh, there's a way in which American, there's a, again, there's always a book. Um, there's a wonderful book. Have you seen this one? Uh, Rich People's Tax Movements, I think it's called, or uh, mm-hmm. people's tax, Rich People's Tax Movements. And um, uh, Isaac Smith, he's a sociologist. And he says, it's remarkable the way that uh, in modern America, it happened, and he sees that the real distinction is uh, 1917. 1917, Canada introduces absolutely pathetic income taxes, right? As conservative yeah. as possible is always the watchword. Mm-hmm. They are taxing less progressively than czarist Russia, okay? Um, meanwhile, the Americans jump into the war in the spring mm-hmm. of 1917 and immediately take their income tax way up from, it was like, four percent or something to like 60 70 something like that and uh and and immediately you get the birth very quickly thereafter you get the birth of a tax resistance movement in the united states Mm -hmm. right and the canadians don't really have one because they don't have real taxes so to speak Um, but the americans get this movement persuading um ordinary people that the wealthy are your best defenders of your liberties it's about freedom and you the poor really want the rich to be as free as possible because that's the only way you can be free too. This is the argument Burke made, right? In the 18th Mm -hmm. century, Edmund Burke says, you know, well, it's really good that some people have a lot of property because nobody else can protect you from the state. Only the really wealthy can. Um, That's the only reign on uh, heavy taxation or whatever. So um, the American you know, this, this, and it's, there's another book, Roman Hure, American Tax Resistors. There's a whole bunch of, you know, interesting yeah. things on America. It's, American tax politics are fascinating. And um, the extent to which uh, a, a freedom argument won out. And I think this is one of the big differences between Canada and the United States is that because the Americans wedded violence and freedom in 1776, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's a very, very powerful call. And in Canada, um, because they didn't fuse them together quite so scorchingly, mm-hmm. uh, the freedom argument doesn't carry as much weight and the taxes don't seem quite so terrible. But the other other aspect of that is I would say that uh, anybody, everybody understands in the United States, the American state is seen to be the greatest danger to American freedom, right? The American mm-hmm. state is not really protecting you from enemies. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to invade the United States in any serious way. Um, yeah. So the state is the, the big enemy of freedom. And in Canada, it's very obvious that if you abolish the Canadian state, you've got the American one um, <laughs> effectively moving in, whether it does right. so openly with the state or whether it's doing it simply by, you know, American consumer culture, et cetera, uh, yeah. soft power. So Canadians understand they need a state to protect them from whatever hostile forces or whatever neutral forces, but essentially from Americanization. And and they do look to the South and say, there is more violence. Um, and uh, so they're more tolerant of the state and they see greater freedom in state restrictions uh, than in disbanding them. Hmm. That's interesting. It's a theory. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. I'm also sort of, um, interested in this period um around the sort of end of like mcdonald's life where you get this idea of like this canadian rather than british identity and how the state and government and spending of 
funds sort of like plays into that as well. Um, I mean, I'm, I kind of, one of the reasons I write about the state and taxes is because I don't want to write about identity. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really an identity person. Um, I'm interested in identity. I've taught cultural history for years here at McGill. Um, and I'm interested in the way identity claims are made, yeah. but it does feel a little bit like there's more mystification than analysis going on very often. Mm -hmm. And I do like the tax element simply because um, you get to say, well, show me the numbers, right? Joe, the yeah. Mother should have shown the numbers and you can you can legitimately say uh you're just making a claim um but i i'm kind of in my recent work i'm kind of turning back to these identity questions because ultimately um the extent of state power uh, is really determined by ascribed identities i'm i'm looking at the politics of ascription right now as i see it and uh i'm trying to turn identities into a state into a tax-like model analysis <laughs> i'm not sure it's gonna go not sure it's gonna work but i'm writing a book about civilization right now and uh thinking about um and you know it has tax consequences uh but it's also a who are you question yeah 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 because um i I think that there's an interesting question with um, coming out of this like very conservative period. Um, the Laurier like, years. Yeah. <laughs> like the looking, progressive era. Progressive era. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And looking at like the going into the like progressive periods and and then how Canada conceives of itself and its government now. Um, like how that yes. sort of transformation. Yeah, I mean, happens. McDonald persuades everybody that, you know, I'm standing between you and Americanization mm -hmm. and the, the liberals keep saying it's not such a big threat, right? Yeah. You're not so very different. And the threat is not really real. No, no, it's really real. And Borden mm -hmm. takes it up, of course. And, you know, the Borden free trade election of 1911, um, everybody thought, uh, you know, this was a kind of 2016 election for Canada because, mm -hmm. um, because uh, everybody thought people were rational economic players, right? And that, mm -hmm. of course, you would want a better trade deal with the United States. We wanted access to the American market. Canada's best customer is always going to be the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was just that the Americans said, no, 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 no. We're not going to give you access to our market. We, we think we can starve you into annexation. So we're just not going to give you access. And so McDonald's said, well, you know, I'm no protectionist, but what can we do? They won't let us in. Uh, and then Laurier says, hey, we've done it. We've got in. They're going to let us in and they're going to let us in because the american you know that mcdonald's tariff was was class warfare you know mean spirit you know yeah. uh, enriching some and impoverishing others well the american tariff is a thousand times more so and it's it's so much more lucrative right and there's so much money flowing into the government um that it's kind of embarrassing so you know they do actually want to take down some of their tariff protections um and especially uh at a time when there's an economic a bit of an economic downturn and people are struggling so you know let's get them cheaper food let's lower the tariff our canadian american tariff wall and um and laurie is like we've done it we've got a deal and the tories are oh no this is terrible news we can never combat that and then they say wait a minute yes we can we're gonna fly the flag of nationalism and they do and they win and uh, that is the last time anybody tries to run a free trade election in Canada until NAFTA, um, mm -hmm, you know, yeah. the FTA, North America, you know, but the U.S. Yeah. American first version, uh, U.S. Canadian first version of it. Um, it's killed off for decades because it became obvious at that moment that people weren't willing to be rational actors. They were going to follow the flag. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, populist nationalism. I actually wrote a piece where I, I argued uh, that uh, I compared the um, the 1911 election to the uh, I said I said was Laurier Canada's Obama um, <laughs> because it looked like Canada entered the 20th century with um, the, the the kind of despised national minority now no you know now able to be an equal partner canada's gotten over its catholicophobia and its francophobia mm -hmm. and this is a new period of collaboration where people are willing to be reasonable uh, and tolerant and then um it's uh when uh, when borden wins he wins because all the people that didn't want a french canadian are now 
doubly angry and their anti-French Canadianism, anti-Catholicism mm -hmm. becomes anti-statist as well. And you have mm -hmm. that combination of ethnic national, you know, populist ethnic nationalism and anti-statism. And that's what happens during the Obama years as well. You get that combination of people who don't like black people and now get to say, and I hate the state, right? They've been patriots. Mm -hmm. The state luckily is the last bastion of white civilization sort of thing, right? And, uh, yeah. and so that's a powerful backlash. Um, and I think that's what happens in Canada as well in, in 1911, um, all that anti-state. And they can do it, I said, with a dog whistle in 1911. 1917, they had to drop the dog whistle because... Um, they manifestly had governed terribly. Right? It was it was a party of millionaires. Uh, mm -hmm. Canada in 1911 elected a cabinet full of millionaires, and then they you know they said, well, there's a downturn. Who better to run the economy than the millionaires? Right? They know what they're doing. It'll be great. They'll look after everybody. So six years later, when it's uh, 1917, it's clearly a catastrophe, and um, Canada's having the it had the worst racist election of its entire history. Right? It was a the, the dog whistle dropped and uh, mm -hmm. the Catholicophobia and the American, the Francophobia was, was front and center. Uh, the language was really shocking to many people at the time. And uh, you could argue something like that, right, happening in the United States as well, except yeah. that Borden won in 1917. And of course, Donald Trump did in 2020, right. if you read certain news sources. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. But I do think it's interesting to uh, there, there's been this sense that Canadians and Americans are so different. And mm -hmm. I think that more that we it's not that they're identical, but the more we look for similarities and parallels, the more interesting the story is, I think, you know, just because that's the part of the story that needs to be developed. Uh, and it needs to be developed by Americans. I, I honestly think American historians, since we're, if I have a privileged platform to speak to them here, uh, <laughs> not American historians, but the American should understand that Canadians are always saying to themselves, how American should we be at this moment, right? Is it good or bad for us to be like the Americans here? And for much of Canadian history, they really weren't sure that you could make a go of it, that you could be a country, that you could be a successful flourishing people by whatever colonial or imperial or national standard without following the American template of violence and racism, you know, that, that, that the Americans became enormously powerful and wealthy and could you make it in North America on any other terms than that? So they're always thinking, what does it mean to be American? And how American should I be in order to, you know, have a good life or whatever you want? So there's a way in which I really think that uh, Americans would find more interest in Canada than they might their first have thought. I mean, I find Canada fascinating <laughs> to the point that I think my entire research focus for like academia has changed. But um, really, uh, yeah, about that or not now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we can. Uh, yeah, we can have a tangent. Sure, tangent. We're all about tangents. Um, I'm sure I can find tax stories in there. So. <laughs> there you go. Longtime listeners of the pod, you know, you you know, we go off on little tangents. Let's go. <laughs> Tell us your research, Margo. <laughs> um, well, I mean, because it's not really totally formulated yet, I'm figuring things out. I don't have like my theory sorted yet. Um, but I mean, my master's was written all about indigenous and the US states sort of like figuring out power dynamics. Mostly it was I was arguing that the US uh, invaded like, um, I am falling apart. <laughs> Doing really great. It's been uh, quarantine came between me and my MRP. So well, oh, did it right? Um, but this is the internal empire question, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So I mean, my my thesis was that it it's it's not really yeah that the the states specifically. I looked at the Cherokee Nation as an example of this, but that the indigenous nations really claimed statehood in this like 19th century period and that the US 
state started to recognize that and then also turned around and said no and invaded and displaced the people without declaring war. So it was like these violent war crimes, essentially, that the U.S. committed against sovereign nations, but that then in our history, we don't claim as such. We say like, oh, well, these are, you know, domestic nations, whatever that means, and that that isn't really conceived of as a real thing if you look at the way that people were talking about it then. And same for Canada. I think Canadian historians have been very slowly learning that lesson from American historians. I think you got there long before we did, but the Canadian histories are now starting to recognize um, who was in control of the land, right? Um, Again, this book by Hoy that I was just reading this morning, they couldn't do anything, right, without... and, and I think the Canadians longer than the Americans, but in much of the borderlands, uh, you mm-hmm. couldn't do anything without collaboration from Indigenous peoples who were effectively yeah. in control of the land and able yeah. to say, this is what we want. Um, yeah. And you're going to have to negotiate with us. So a lot of those sovereignty questions almost don't come up because there's so many ways to negotiate um, that defer to one another. Um, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes it feels a bit... Um, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, yeah, but yeah, exactly. This question of, you know, how you tell if somebody's sovereign or not is so interesting. And I think, you know, it's like University of Toronto had its way in deciding what progressive person looked like and what a progressive Mm -hmm. nation looked like. And I think you guys are having a great, great revamping of so many of those points. Yeah. But yeah, so and then moving forward, you know, of doing PhD applications and stuff, I I'm looking at Canadian universities and looking at this, um, I've sort of shifted away from statehoods and and sovereignty questions more to um, cultural history and cultural exchange and how that operated um, between Euro-Western and indigenous societies, Um, but sort of specifically in this area around Quebec and New England and the very different Euro-Western cultures that are moving in and how like a sort of comparative history of um, cultural exchange with like the Iroquois nations. What period? Um, the late 17th century. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it sort of was a um, in my attempt at gaining Canadian citizenship. So I've had to do a lot of reading of Canadian history and also in writing my MRP. Um, I have been reading a lot about Quebec and it's just like such a fascinating part of North America. Um, mm-hmm. Especially with like the the very, very English New England area right below it. Um, and how all of that land is also then like part of various Iroquois Confederacy nations. Um, and that the the cultural exchange i mean since we've been doing this podcast a lot about like ritual and ideas around community building um i got very interested in how did these communities that were dependent upon each other especially the french canadian um early quebec settlers were very dependent upon the iroquois and like how that cultural exchange happens um you did a whole thing about witches Oh, wow. Uh, Have you seen uh, Detroit's Hidden Channels um, Mm -mm. book that came out last year? I think it was. And I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, I'm going to fail it if I get it again with them, I think. Um, Detroit's Hidden Channels, really interesting book about um, women in and and the the ways in which um, Indigenous women are right at the center of the commercial and diplomatic relations around Detroit in 18th century Detroit. She starts in the early 18th century and takes us through to the later 18th and she says conquest makes almost no difference to them, right? They get to decide who gets to trade with whom and who's going to fight with whom Um, and it's almost invisible, right? All these things that women do that glue um, their local, you know, kinship relations together, but also mediate across cultural barriers, um, have been invisible to scholars. It's, and I think that's so interesting. I'm, again, my my thing on civilization takes the view that the very meaning of the social (laughs) comes from, to no small degree, not exclusively, but we kind of, you know, like a lot of people will tell you, and I say this in my textbook, um, (laughs) you know, Boaz in anthropology, you know, he says, you got to think about the potlatch as if it was actually a kind of interest 
bearing investment, right? That, that social relations and economic obligations are complicated, dense webs, and politics is accountable to them, not the other way around, right? They tell right. politicians and leaders how to run. It's social power. And right. um, that's, an, that's an argument most notably made, he's not the first, but he's really the first to run with it, is David Hume in the 1750s. Mm-hmm. He says, um, you know, all government is by public opinion. You can't do anything without a certain deference, right? You can't do it with mere power. And I think he's talking about North America, but I think he's also, it's an observation that's coming, you know, is, on the one hand, they're talking about the fact that Europeans can't do what they want. They have to negotiate. Mm-hmm. New yeah. France wants to have a presence in the New World. It has to you know, it exercise that presence through and with allies, and it knows that. Uh, that's very clear. But more than that, I think there's this moment where um, where Benjamin Franklin is negotiating mm-hmm. at Albany in 1754. He's a company right. negotiator, and uh, the uh, and they're negotiating with the Haudenosaunee, and mm-hmm. uh, and he says, "Oh my goodness, they are united and powerful. We will not be able to win these wars until we unite." And he creates this woodcut that I'm sure you know: "Unite mm-hmm. or die." And it's a cut-up snake, right? Yeah. Very yeah. Um, everybody knows that one. But <laughs> just imagine the just imagine the lessons in there because they don't have a state. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you go read that book I mentioned, Scott uh, Scott Shapiro's "Legality," mm-hmm. hunter-gatherer people don't have law, right? But they do have law. Yeah. The Jesuits knew that they had law. The yep. Jesuits knew that women were a part of that law, right? And John de Brebeuf uses the word law. This is clearly mm-hmm. law. I don't know what it is, you know, but it's clearly law. Um, and Benjamin Franklin is saying they don't have a state, but they have laws or they have social cohesion mm-hmm. that can beat the pants off. It's not just an anthropological observation. It's a fundamental reflection on power. And he says, right. we've right. got to find a mechanism for uniting the different colonies. That's what we're going to have to do. Unite in some form or another. Mm-hmm. And Benjamin Franklin and David Hume are sitting at dinner tables together arguing about this stuff, right? Like they really are. Yeah, in the right, yeah. And here we have a primary theorist of what is social power. And here we have somebody who, you know, I mean, there's just so many people that are making that observation, right? You've got yeah. Lahontan is saying it, you've got William Johnson is saying it, you know, all these people are saying, these people have law and power and we have to negotiate with them as if they were free and self-determining nations, right? Mm-hmm. We just have to treat them as equals. So not equals, but, you know, um, yeah. but Franklin in particular is the one who says not just that, but they are better than us at doing what has mm-hmm. to be done to, to run this colony, to run this country, right? Right. I think that's so important. Um, and I, I think that that hasn't been known. So I agree with you. And I, I suspect <laughs> the uh, the 17th to early 18th century, you know, is uh, it would be enormously fruitful. I think you're going to find yeah. wonderful stuff. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, the uh, Detroit's Hidden Channels is, is particularly interesting on the women's aspect in that. Yeah. Awesome. I wrote it down. So I have a lot of most of these books written down actually (laughs) i have a massive reading list (laughs) um but yeah so i think i don't sonia do you have a time check uh we've been talking for about 45 minutes but i mean yeah so so we're coming we we got time we we have a little time still yeah so yeah we normally try and keep the pot around um 50 minutes um so that I don't have to spend my entire life editing it. <laughs> um, but so uh, I think for our last few minutes, if there is anything, uh, this was something that I saw on another podcast, so I'm stealing it, who also have historians come on. Um, if there's anything um, either from the book or from our conversation that uh, you feel like we didn't really get into as deep as you'd like to, or that you just really want to say to our, again, like to our American listeners or American and Canadian listeners. I would love to make one further point that I think speaks to your interests and concerns. And that is this, you know, so interested in that social element of Mm -hmm. history, right? Mm -hmm. The the rediscovery, and I'm 
you know, I'm kind of writing a history of that social element. But I also um, co-edited a recent book that came out, um, Who Pays for Canada, Taxes and Fairness. Right. And uh, the real attempt there is, and it, it's really my last word on taxes. <laughs> I'm not going any further. And I brought in my tax friends, you know, Shirley Tillotson's in, David, Till David Tuff's giving a paper. Uh, Barrington Walker gives a great paper on uh, school taxes and Black uh, kids in schools in uh, 19th century Ontario. Um, but uh, the real effort there is to, you know, there's something happened, something really ugly happened when economists became the experts on taxes. And somehow the conversation devolved away from ordinary accountability to the public, right? The key with taxes as with any element in life if you can't defend it before a jury of 12 ordinary people picked at random from the phone booth then you probably shouldn't be able to defend it at all and that's you know i really think that paul you know i'm a democrat i think politics has got to be accountable to the whole people it can't just be accountable to experts and bureaucrats and you know wealthy elites and all that sort of thing but something happened uh with economics and I don't think we even have begun to understand. Um, there's been so much excellent literature on this question. But, uh, you know, if you look at our university right now, right, uh, mm, it yeah. is not really run in the interests of the students. The students yeah. are consumers and consumers have a certain influence about what choices they get. But our universities have effectively enthroned economists. And there's been some interesting work. Yeah. Marion Forcat has got a book on, uh, has, has discussed uh, that, um, you know, people like Donald Creighton used to have a voice in the public sphere. And conservative historians will say, ah, we lost our voice in the public sphere because all these right wing left-wing historians kind of, you know, got all frivolous and trivial and social justice warrior-y, et cetera, and nobody wanted to hear them. But if you look more closely, I think it's a story of economics and the way mm -hmm. economists said, ultimately, all the important questions are the ones that we can answer in a way that nobody else can. And partly they're saying, well, we measure popular choices. You don't need any other disciplines to understand what the people mm -hmm. want because our measures of you know, efficiency and, you know, they, they have all these ways in which they say that economics is a universal science, almost a universal, you know, it's almost like natural law. We're back yeah. in the world of natural law. Only economists are more suited than others to, um, to interpret it. And I think that is the fundamental um, circumventing of, of, you know, the social, of popular opinion. They channel it. And uh, I've just been preparing a, uh, a lecture. I gave a lecture on, um, on uh, in my law and society class, um, quoted an article from the Washington Post in April 2020 saying, these demonstrations against lockdowns and masks, they look very you know, very um, kind of spontaneous and heartfelt, etc. But they are being orchestrated. They're being orchestrated by, let me give you an example, I think it's called the Convention of American States or something like that, which was created by a hedge fund billionaire and his friends. Mm -hmm. And their original plot, they were created, whatever, 10, 20 years ago or something, in order to require that all states have balanced budgets at all times, that they can't run up a debt. Yeah. Turning into public health is new to this group, right? But they're turning to public health and they're doing it not just because the lockdown is going to hurt their economic investments, which it will do, right? There's no question. Yeah, this is fair, right? Yeah. You get to defend your, but they're trying to make it impossible to have a government accountable to the people that mm -hmm. has a mandate, a government that has a mandate to impose a mask, I happen to think, um, is a government that has a mandate to tax, and, yes. you know, they're heavily influenced by public choice theory economics, which would like to say, well, you know, tax is kind of theft, right? That's, uh, that's an argument by Buchanan. It's as much theft yeah. as the Central Park mugger stealing your right. wallet. Mm -hmm. Taxes are fundamentally illegitimate. And uh, they can't look back to 18th century economic theorists who say that. Adam Smith doesn't say that. Right. Uh, David Hume mm -hmm. doesn't say that. Um, this is a new theory. They say we're just applying 18th century economic thought to the state, or to politics as well. We're just extending it a little bit. But the goal is to say there has never been a legitimate tax. And I think the only 
only response to that has got to be ordinary common sense public opinion right it's mm -hmm. what people want if people really think uh it's fair and if you look back at the pedigree of those kinds of arguments right yeah problems in ireland in 1847 shouldn't be fixed by the state right that would be mad right and the same thing yeah. on the prairies we see this on the prairies um you know that you don't want the state to fix it because then they will never learn market uh orientations etc it's an old argument it's always there the tax debates were always about mm -hmm. how do you stop a fiscal transfer from the rich to the poor even as that's not really the problem as i say right. so there's um I, I do think that it's if you want to think about public agency and social uh causation um it's really important to look at the way that uh the university has fundamentally you know defined it out of existence <laughs> right yeah yeah Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is that okay? Yeah, this Sorry. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, no, this is perfect. <laughs> we just really want to thank um, Dr. Heeman again for coming on the pod. We hope that you guys really enjoyed this episode all about taxes and Canada. And if you liked this, we have a little bit of extra content, extra interview time with Dr. Heeman over on the Patreon. So if you subscribe to the Patreon, you can get that super cool information, a little bit more about academia and uh, Canadian history. And yeah, so we really hope that you liked this episode. If you did, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. It'll really help us get out to more listeners. Um, which we really want to do. And remember that we have a bunch new Patreon perks coming um, when our new season launches in June. So get ready for that. And we'll have some more information about that in the coming weeks. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!